if they say, why should I do business with your insurance agency? I'm going to say, I'm not sure you should. And they're well, going to say, why? I say, because I don't know enough about you and whether our products are a fit for what you're looking for until you and I have a conversation and I ask you some questions. But here's what I'm going to tell you. After I ask you those questions, you and I are going to have a really good understanding of whether we're a fit or not. And if we're not a fit, then I'm going to suggest you go someplace else where it's a better fit. If we are a fit, you're going to know it. I'm going to know it. And doing business together is going to be fun. So the big question is this. How do small business owners like us grow our business, grow our leadership, and develop our teams in a way that allows us to get our products and services out of the world, yet still remain profitable? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. I'm Bradley Hamner, and this is the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. Hey, before we get into today's episode, did you know that Club Capital is the largest accounting and advisory firm for insurance agency owners in the country, providing monthly accounting, CFO services, and tax preparation? Check them out at club.capital. Welcome to another episode of the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. My name is Bradley Hamner. It's not often that you get to learn from one of the top three sales experts in the world, but that's exactly who we have on today's podcast, Mr. Jerry Acuff the founder, CEO of Delta Point. Jerry has been working with and his entire team have been working with some of the top companies in the world, some of the biggest companies, many name brands that many of you would be familiar with. And we're going to talk about a lot of different things, obviously about sales and marketing. It's just been absolute pleasure for me to get to know him over the last couple of days. We're going to talk about pattern interruption. We're talking about the importance of having a real failure, but yet being adaptable. And as we're coming out, hopefully, of the COVID, I think that's going to be very relevant. He's going to tell you a story about final expense insurance. I think it's going to resonate with many of you. We talk about the importance of building alignment. And in the end, where could maybe having a crystal ball in your office be important? I'm excited to introduce to you all, Mr. Jerry Acuff. Wouldn't it be a great start to 2021 by having more leads in your book of business? Well, that's where our partners at Direct Clicks Inc. come in. Their team's dialed-in approach to running Google ads and online SEO campaigns maximize the quality and the volume of your leads, whether that's for inbound phone calls or even exclusive leads through your website. Direct Clicks Inc. works only with PNC insurance agency owners, so they have thousands of hours creating A-B split testing and improving online campaigns specifically for insurance. They also understand why each and every marketing dollar matters in providing true results, low paper clicks, transparency, and attention to detail, all of which is discussed in depth during your monthly review calls. Reach out to the Direct Clicks team at directclicksinc.com. That's directclicksinc.com and find out how they can make a difference in your approach to generating new business. Are you an agency owner looking to grow your revenue and increase your bottom line? Club Capital is here to help. Built for agents by agents, so we know your struggles. With accounting, payroll, and HR solutions, tax services, analytics, and more, let's get you on the path to serious success. Using data-driven insights, you'll grow your business based on revenue and expense comparisons alongside your top performing peers. With over $100 million in tracked annual revenue and $70 million in tracked annual expenses, we have the data to help you make better informed decisions for your agency. Let's make your back office less of a hassle and more of the strategic generator that powers the growth to take your agency and your leadership to the next level. Visit club.capital today to book your complimentary, no obligation demo. Club Capital, way more than a CPA firm. Jerry Acuff, welcome to the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. I'm glad to be here, Bradley. Thanks for having me. Oh, man, I'm so excited to have you on. Well, we always start with background and origin story. I've just enjoyed the conversation we've had before this podcast. And then yesterday we had a long time just getting to know you. So for those that don't know you, can you just kind of take us up to present day about how you got to where you are today and just a little bit about your background? Well, I was born and raised in Memphis. I wound up going to high school at Cocoa Beach, Florida, my senior year, because I was playing at Catholic High in Memphis. They wouldn't let me on the field. I went to Cocoa Beach and I made first team All-State in Florida in just one year. And then I got football scholarship to VMI. 
And then after VMI, I didn't do very well at VMI. So I started my first job in insurance business when I lasted 90 days. And I tell people, you know, I ran out of friends and family. Your mom can only buy so many policies. And I went into the Army just for 90 days. And and then I went and got a job at Lipton Tea, selling tea. I lived in Jackson, Tennessee. And I did that for nine months, and I couldn't stand to get out of the car, call on customers because I'm basically shy. I mean, I'll never forget my boss told me one time, you know, we should sell Lipton tea mix and the tea bags. And he would sell a cup of soup and main dish dinners, right? Well, this is back in the early 70s. Well, hell, nobody had a microwave, and especially in the country where I lived. So I remember my boss called me one time in December and said, you got to go up there to Malone and Hyde and Jackson and get them to buy 100 cases of main dish dinners. I said, Miles, his name was Miles Lewis, a great guy. I said, Miles, I couldn't stand on the corner and give 100 cases of this stuff away. How the hell do you think I can sell it? And so I'd sit in the car and wouldn't call on customers. So I finally said, well, we'll get back into coaching because I played football and I've always saw myself as a college coach. And then I got rejected from graduate school at Northeast Louisiana University. And then that put me in the pharmaceutical business. I didn't want to be in sales. I thought pharmaceutical sales was PR. My boss in about a week convinced me that I was dead wrong, that it was a sales business. But the thing he told me, Bradley, that I thought was so important And he was an athlete himself. He said, look, Jerry, you're a smart guy. People like you. If you'll work hard and be your authentic self, you'll be fine. And that sort of gave me the freedom to just be me rather than, you know, so it's okay for me not to have what I would call the quintessentially bullion, effusive, backslapping salesperson, which was my image, which is not me. A decent rep for six years. Wound up getting promoted to Birmingham, took over the worst district in the country. Then seven of the eight years I was a manager, we had 70 districts. I had the number one district seven out of eight years. And then wound up getting to the home office and then woke up one day running the company and stayed there until I realized that I thought I could do better on my own. And so I started my own business in 1994 and boy, was I an idiot. I thought, you know, for God, you know, I'm this brilliant guy who runs a $650 million company with a thousand employees. I know I can go out here and make a couple hundred grand a year on my own. Hell, it took me five years to make 200,000 together. So starting your own business is not easy. And I borrowed $123,000 from credit cards to feed my habit. Took me six years to pay them off. And it took me six years to get back to where I was when I was employed. And then I wound up selling the company to a wholesaler, drug wholesaler. I didn't make any money on it. They paid me 10 grand a month for two years to stay home. And that's all I got out of it. So I went and got a job as a VP of sales for a training company. And then after 15 months, I took the training company from 4 million to 8 million. And then they fired me because they said I couldn't be trusted because I disagreed with the CEO, who, by the way, was a friend of mine at my wedding. I disagreed with him thinking that you'd want to know the truth, but he basically what he wanted was a yes man. Mm. He fired me on May the 22nd of 2000. And I started this business in August because I couldn't find a job. So when people say you're this really successful entrepreneur and I am, I said, look, I go to these schools, you know, they want me to talk to entrepreneurship. I said, you people got to understand something. Entrepreneurs are not people who wake up with a brilliant idea and then go start a company. Some of them are idiots like me that couldn't find a job. And so you had to figure out a way to feed your families. When I started my entrepreneurial career, for real, I was 51. I had a one-year-old. I had a wife who wasn't working. I had a $400,000 mortgage. And I had enough money in the bank to last me four months. Mm. And I kept saying this to myself because I had been very good in sales. If I could just find something to sell. And sure enough, a guy called me that used to work for me. By the way, that's Phil Snow's son. Oh, okay. He was my first customer. Yeah. He called me and asked me to do a speech. And I asked him why. And he told me. And I said, well, you'd be wasting your money. And he said, no, I need you. You're the most inspirational speaker I've ever heard. I said, yeah, but what you want is to get people to change their behavior. You want leaders to change their behavior. You're not going to do that with a speech. You need a consulting project. He said, well, can you do that? And I said, well, I probably could. He said, well, send me a proposal. Now, Bradley, I don't even have a company. This is August of 2000. So I walked down the street, four doors. There's my lawyer. And the only reason I say he's my lawyer, because at the time he's only my friend, right? And I said, (laughs) can you create an LLC, call it Delta, because it means change, because I got to start this business so I can send this guy a proposal. So I sent him a proposal for 45,000. 
In the middle of that proposal, he hired me again for 75. I made 123,000 in the first four months and I was off to the races. Now, what happened on the second project, and then I'll shut up. He asked me if I would help them figure out how to sell their product that was difficult to sell. And I said, yeah, I think I probably could. All I did was reverse engineer what I did when I was his manager mm. and had the top district in the country. I said, you got to learn from really smart people. And then you share what you've learned with those smart people to everybody else. And the product went from $350 million a year to a billion in two years. So then I got a reputation that if you have a difficult product to sell, call Jerry. Well, back then it was just me. And of course, now we have 15 employees. We've done business with 18 of the top 100 companies in the world. And I've written four best-selling books and, you know, a third best sales expert in the world and strategic advisory firm of the year, four years in a row, CEO of the year in Arizona, four years in a row. And I mean, all I did was start to let me feed my family. That's all I gave a damn about. And next thing you know, I got this very successful company with a terrific reputation. And a lot of it is luck, man. But I always tell people, you know, the two things that really matter in this Jerry's view of the world, if you're going to be successful in life, you need two things. You need to be really good at something, Hmm. really good at it. Hmm -hmm. And you need a network of people where being really good at it matters. Hmm. Now I had both. So I accessed my network about what I was good at. And I wound up with a business that currently does, I think this year we'll do seven and a half million dollars in revenue and our profit is, shall we say, impressive. And so that's my story. That is unbelievable. That's why I asked this question for background and origin story for those stories right there. That's unbelievable. What do you think going back to it? What was it at the time, which I'm sure that it's evolved over time since when you started the company, What do you believe it was that he saw in you at the time to say, hey, look, I want you to come and do this consulting. What were you the best in the world at or really, really good at? Maybe not the best in the world at the time, but really good at that made him see that in you to say, hey, I want you to come in here and help us with this. Well, he was asking for change management. And as it turns out, when I had been at the training company, I had seen so many failures. Actually, let me go back. In a drug company, I ran a bunch of initiatives that didn't work out. And Mm -hmm. I ran some that did work out. And then when I was in the training company, it was the same thing. So what I did one day and I sat down and I said, okay, what are the steps in the process to a successful change, organizational change? So honestly, Bradley, when I started this company, I never dreamed that I would be doing what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I thought I would be doing change management because I had developed this process, six-step process for how do you actually orchestrate change. And I identified the two parts in the process where most companies fail and fail miserably. And so I told him, I said, well, I've already developed this process. I'd like to take your people through this process. Well, I explained the process to him, and that's what convinced him. Now, then when I got in there, he also knew that I was a sales expert. And so when he had this product in the same business that we'd been in before, he said, well, can you help us sell this product? And I said, well, I probably could. Send me a proposal. I sent him one for 75000 and the next thing is history. Now, here's what's interesting. I have not done a change management project since then. Yeah, it was the, wow. It was the foundation of my starting of my business. But one of the things that I would say to people is that if you ask me what's made me successful, it's fundamentally two things. One is I have a gigantic fear of failure. And if you grow up like I did, which, you know, my parents were married nine times. My mother's married five. My father married four. My dad was bankrupt three times. My stepfather pulled a gun on me twice. We had money. We didn't have money. We had money. We didn't have money. We'd move all the time because we couldn't pay the rent. The lights would be turned off. And I just grew up saying, I don't want to be that way. I have a fear that I end up that way. But the other thing is that I realized early on that to be successful, I had to be adaptable. But I learned that in college. I went to a military college, Virginia Military Institute, which I am now the chairman of the board of the alumni agencies. And you cannot succeed at VMI in athletics or in the military or academically unless you're adaptable. So when he asked me to pivot to do the product, I just figured out, okay, I got to do this. When the pandemic hit and we were cruising along after, you know, last year was our 19th year. This is our 20th year. And we were doing really good, had done good. I think in the 19 years we'd been in business, we'd had one bad year and a whole bunch of really good years. And I'm talking seven-figure income, et cetera. And I realized if we don't adapt, we're not going to make it. If we can't figure out how to teach people to sell over the Internet, you know, over Mm -hmm. Zoom, WebEx, MS Teams, whatever, then we're not going to make it. So I devoted about a month to actually trying to figure out how the hell do you do this? And then I developed 
how do you engage people in the hybrid environment? How do you engage people personally? How do you coach virtually? And then we put all of our traditional work. We said we can do it virtually. We don't need to go to interview people. We can do it all virtually. So I think fear of failure and adaptability have been the things that have made me successful. So that was actually one of the questions I wanted to ask you today, and I think it's a good time to do it. So it's really a two-part question. One is how has selling a complex product, which I've heard you define that as anything, I believe, over $500 and almost exclusively for insurance agents and their teams, they're the products, the auto insurance, homeowners insurance, life insurance as well over that. That's number one. So how has that changed from whenever you first started coaching and teaching and mentoring consulting to now? And the second part is there are a lot of companies that are making big investments, captive insurance companies, and even independent agents that are looking to have Zoom-like capabilities to be able to meet with people virtually. What are maybe one or two key points that we need to keep in mind when selling in this type of format? Yeah, well, I'll answer the first question. The biggest thing has changed, I think, is, well, there's several things. One is the internet has made it easy for us to learn about people and for people to learn about us before we ever meet with them. And that is a huge advantage and a huge disadvantage because they can also find out if you suck at something. And so your reputation's everything. So I think the digital thing is probably the biggest thing. And I think the other thing that the digital age has done is it has shortened our attention spans. I mean, with the digital economy, you're looking at somewhere between four and 20,000 images every single day. And if you are not in the top 10 of those images that they see every day, they are not going to remember them. And so figuring out creative ways to be interesting and use what Brendan Kane in his book, Hook Point, would call pattern interruption that makes me want to learn more becomes absolutely, absolutely crucial. So I think the biggest thing is that's changed is the internet has made it easy. So if I give you an example, so I'm interviewing this guy who was one of my clients wanted me to interview him and I was doing it over the phone, right? I didn't know who he was. I just got his name. And so I was paying him 500 bucks for an hour, had my secretary call him. He said, I'll do $500 for 15 minutes. So my secretary says, well, what should I tell him? I said, tell him I won't do that. I'll do it for 30. So he, he comes back and says, okay, well, there you go Google a guy. I find out. He's the, at the time, and this was probably five years ago, he was the team doctor for the NHL. He was the team doctor for the White Sox and the team doctor for the Chicago Bulls. Then I found out that the guy played football at Harvard the same time I played at VMI. Now, this guy, I'm paying him half of what I'm paying everybody else, right? And he's probably the most important person I'm ever going to talk to. So I got to figure out how do I make... So I read up everything, and here's what I found out. Every question that I was going to ask him was answered on the Internet. I didn't really need to pay this guy anything. I knew exactly what he used and why he used it, and so I knew exactly what to do. But then I said, well, I actually really want to pick this guy's brain, maybe try and build a relationship with him. So when he got on the phone, and he was very nice, in spite of the fact that this guy's the real deal, this was a very decent, humble man. And I said, hey, Doc. I said, before we get into what I want to talk about this product, I said, I have to tell you that I learned something about you on the Internet that fascinated me. Now, that's a pattern interruption that makes me want to learn more. And he said, well, what was it? And I said, you and I played football at the exact same time in college. He said, well, why does that fascinate you? And I said, I'll tell you exactly why. I said, VMI, where I went, I had a scholarship and I went so I could get a free education. You play football at Harvard where there are no scholarships. You know what that means? That means you played because you love the game. And not only did you play, you played and excelled academically so you could become one of the top orthopedic surgeons in America. That's what fascinates me. Now, you think I got his attention? You're darn right I do. So then he asked me, so you actually played when we had to wear that 50 on your helmet because it was the 50th anniversary of college football? I said, yeah, we talked for 20 minutes about college football and it was delightful. And so now I got 10 minutes to actually interview him, right? So at the end of the 10 minutes, which made it 30, I said, Doc, look, you and I only contracted for 30 minutes. And so candidly, we need to probably end this call. He said, man, let's don't stop talking. I'm having fun. And so I just think that the internet has made it easy for us to connect with people if we'll actually investigate who they are. I mean, I don't interview anybody that I don't Google 
check their Facebook, look at LinkedIn to see if they have connections that are similar to mine. I'll try and pick out connections that I think we might actually have, because if I can do that, then it sort of credentials me. But I think that's a huge thing. So if you want to know how to be successful in this environment, I'd say two things. Number one, do your homework. I mean, if you're going to go meet with somebody and you're trying to sell them a policy, why wouldn't you check them out on Facebook? Why wouldn't you try and see what their hobbies are, what their interests are? Look at the pictures that they have on there. They might have a daughter who's a cheerleader at at the same high school that your son is a football player. I mean, I don't know what you're going to find, but I know you're not going to find anything if you don't look for it. By the way, when people know that you've actually studied up on them, they feel like they're important. Well, hell, they are. That's why you checked up on them, right? But I was talking to somebody the other day that I didn't know, and I checked her out on I said, now, look, I know one of your son's name is Holt, but I don't know the other one. She said, my God, how'd you find that out? And I said, well, look, everybody I interview, I mean, I check them out. I want to know something about them. And so we got to the end of the interview. She still hadn't told me what her second son's name was. So I said, look, are you ever going to tell me what this kid's name is? And she laughed and she said, yeah, his name is Walter. I forget what he was. But my point is, you got to do your homework. That's the first thing. The second thing is you got to be a human. And by human, I mean, if this is in the middle of a pandemic and you're talking to somebody about anything, I would suggest that maybe the first thing you want to talk about is how you and your loved ones get along during this pandemic. Because I'm going to tell you, there's a story there for probably half the people who want to tell you. Now, some are going to say, like me, if you ask me, I'd say, well, we're fine. Now, my father-in-law died during the COVID thing. He didn't have COVID. He had a pulmonary embolism, but we haven't had any negative effects of COVID, but a lot of people have. And so if I find that out, then at least I understand the kind of empathy that I need to emphasize. I think the other thing is how do you position yourself? Number one, you should position yourself as a resource and not as a nuisance. And the second thing you ought to do is you ought to use your voice and your tonality and your desire to find out whether there's a real opportunity here or not and get somebody to actually want to have a conversation with you. And so you say, look, my name is Jerry Acuff and I work for Delta Point and I was wondering if maybe you could help me. Let's say you're talking to a receptionist, right? Mm -hmm. Now, he or she is going to say, well, how can I help you? And then what my friend Jeremy Miner would tell you is to say, well, I'm not sure you can, but Mm -hmm. let me tell you a little bit about what we do with others. And then you tell me, who do you think it might make sense? Now, listen to my words, might make sense. Because see what the average person would say, who do I need to talk to? That's too blunt. I call them soft words. Jeremy calls them neutral words. You need to use words that signal to the other person that they're in charge. Mm. Because guess what? They They are. They are. So why don't you let them feel that way rather than act like you're in charge? Mm -hmm. And I'll give you an example. Somebody asked me to submit a proposal to somebody I didn't know. And it was a good friend of mine, a guy who used to work for me. And he said, this is what they need. They need you. And you need to just send a proposal. I send it to them. I said, I'm not going to do that. He said, why? I said, because I don't know whether I can help them or not. And I said, so if you really want me to do this, you need to put me in touch with the person who's making the decision. Because let me tell you something. The only thing I have of any value in my business is my reputation. I'm not going to risk ruining my reputation by taking a project where I'm not sure I can help them. Mm -hmm. So I get on the phone. This woman I talked to was the head of marketing, really, really impressive woman. And she had a couple other people on there. And at the end, she said, well, we have another vendor. I said, okay, that's great. You need to have choices. But we really like your approach. I mean, we really think it's spot on. So I'm getting positive vibes, right? So I send them a proposal. I think it's a hundred grand and they come back and say, well, look, we told you we had another vendor and the other vendor we like, and they're a third of your cost. And so could you come in at around 50 grand? And so I just went back and said, look, I'm not going to respond to your, what I'll do for 50 grand. What I'm going to tell you is that you should hire the other vendor because if you really like the other vendor and they're a third of what I'm going to charge you, why would you ever want to do business with me? Sure. Well, she sends me an email back and says, well, we want to do business with you because we like you better. And I said, but you're asking me to take a 40% haircut to do work where I would make no money. I'm not going to do that. I said, now, if you're asking me, could I take some stuff out and still give you a deliverable that I'd be proud of and do it for less money? The answer to that is yes. And so she said, well, can you do that? And then the answer is I did it. And then it wound up at 70,000 bucks. Hmm. It wound up being twice of what they ultimately decided. Sure. But 
I was perfectly willing to walk away because I wanted to do what was right by the client. And so I think I write in my book that stop acting like a seller, start thinking like a buyer. The first chapter is what is selling? Because I think if you have the wrong definition of selling, you're going to be in trouble. I'd say I had the wrong definition of selling when I started in the insurance business and the food business. When I got the right definition of selling, I became a superstar. So I think you got to have the right definition of selling. I think you got to understand that, look, not everybody needs what you're selling. And if they don't need what you have, you got no right to sell them what you do have. Hmm. So I was perfectly fine with them using somebody else. I have a good friend in Dallas who I've given business to because I've told people in Dallas, you'd be stupid to hire me and pay me more than you can pay him. And at the same time, he lives in Dallas. You're not going to pay any expenses. And I'm telling you, this guy's a rock star. Yeah. Now, he hasn't written books like me. He's not the top third sales expert in the world. And if you're dying to write a big check to have me come down, do it. But it's not what I would do. You don't need me. You need somebody really, really good. He's really good. Yeah. I vouch for the guy. So they, Give me his number. <laughs> and so they go hire him. I don't lose any sleep over that. We're not having any crowdfunding for Jerry. Yeah. <laughs> You mentioned this yesterday, and I know it's so fascinating for some people to hear this. And I've heard you on another podcast say this, too, that the less you care about the sell, the better off you're going to do. And that's kind of what you were just illustrating to us. But for some of the producers, the agents that are listening to this, they're producers, they're pushed to be able to get sales. They need to sell X amount of items, apps, policies, premium every single month. How can the agency owners listening to this begin to try to articulate that to their teams to say, listen, obviously you care about the results and the production that you're putting up. But at the same time, whenever you come across as pushy and needy that you've got to make this sale to hit your numbers, that's actually going to push you away from hitting the goals that you need to. Well, I think it's a classic case of, number one, salespeople in general have gotten a bad rap. And so you come into this equation with negative baggage. 97% of responses to the term salespeople are negative. The reality is if you want to exchange information with another person, and I would submit to you that that's what selling is, two things need to be true, probably. Number one, the customer needs to believe that you're not biased. Now, ask yourself this question. How often do we go in there where we sound biased? And then you wonder why you ain't selling more. This is why I say the less you care about the sale, the more you sell. Here's a big idea. Care about what matters. What matters is how damn good are you? How good are you at identifying needs and getting people to understand that your insurance is worth more money? And it's worth more money because of you and because of the relationship that you're going to build with them, that you're going to build with them over their lifetime so that you can actually be the company to protect them and their property and their car and their life and their finances. I'll tell you a story. This is actually in my book. I go to the Arizona Cardinal football games when I first moved to Phoenix in 2000. And I'm sitting in the stands. It's hotter in Haiti. So it's not hot because I got on a sweatshirt. And I get to VMI sweatshirt where I went to school. And the guy sitting behind me taps me on the shoulder. And he says, are you from Virginia? And I said, well, not really. I went to college there. And he said, well, I went to Virginia Tech. And I said, well, I hated Virginia Tech like Alabama people hate Auburn people. And Auburn people, you know, I hate them. Because when I played them, they had us 49 to nothing with 10 seconds left. They called timeout, kick a field goal to beat us 52 to nothing. Oh, I, mean, I mean, 49 to nothing wasn't enough, right? Mm. So anyway, and he doesn't tell me what he does for a living. He just So we talk, and well, I see him at the next week. And the next, we both have season tickets. We're right there together. And finally, he says, hey, we ought to go to lunch someday. And I said, sure. Now, I don't even know what this guy does, right? So I go to lunch with him, and he tells me he's a financial planner. And he asked me this question. I think it's a brilliant question. So I asked him, I said, so, John, what do you do? He said, well, I'm a financial planner. And he said, so I'm assuming you have one. And I said, yeah. And then he asked me this question, Bradley. He says, how much do you like him? And I said, well, candidly, I don't like him at all. I think Mm -hmm. he's a jerk. Now, then he asked me this question. How good is he? And I said, hell, I don't have a clue how good he is. I mean, I don't know how to judge because finance is not my deal, right? I don't know how to judge him. I'm not financially astute. He said, well, look, if you ever want me to take a look at your stuff, I'd be happy to and tell you whether this guy's any good or not. But that's your decision. If you don't want to, I don't care. And so I said, no, I actually think that would be. And I have to tell you, at that moment in time, my net worth was probably $175,000. So he comes to the house. I give him the stuff, comes back. Now, tell me what I'm expecting to hear. Probably saying that he's not very good. 
Well, here's what he does. He comes in and he said, look, I have to tell you something. You may not like this guy, but he is really good. Hmm. He said, of all the things that you showed me, and they're not a many, but of all the things you showed me, there's only one thing I would do differently. And I said, what's that? He said, if I were you, this is what he said, I would call him and tell him to take this money that your wife has in a medical spending account at her old company and convert it to an IRA. So call him and tell him to do that. And I said, I'm not doing that. You are going to do that. And you're not calling him. You're going to take care of this. You are now my financial planner. Wow. And why did I do that? Because I said to myself, as someone who's a sales expert, what did I expect this guy to do? I expect him to do exactly what you said. Hammer that guy. Because sure. I gave him every opportunity to tell me the guy was just shrill. He didn't do it. So I said to myself, what have I got here? So then he tells me, because within a year or two, I start making a significant amount of money. And he said to me, I have to tell you, you're in your early 50s, maybe mid 50s. You're doing really, really good. I want you to understand my approach to you is for you to not lose your money. Mm. I am not looking to make you a lot of money because you're doing a really good job of that yourself. I want to make sure you don't lose your money. And I will tell you, this guy has become one of my best friends in the world. He's like a brother to me. And if I need and when I needed to open up, a, I mean, it's 401k. He told me who to contact. And of course, he handles the 401k, but there's all kinds of rules and stuff about what you can do and how you can do. And so I had to get that person. And then when I decided to add health insurance was when I started getting employees, he turned me on to that vendor. And I've been doing business with that vendor for over 15 years. And that guy's like a friend to me. And so this guy's a gigantic resource to me. I can tell you another story. I call him on the phone one day. Now, he'll do anything for me, right? He's a big sport. He played football at Virginia Tech, and I played football via mine. And I actually coached against his brother one year and actually beat his brother. Only game his brother lost was a game I coached against him. <laughs> anyway, I called him one day, and I said, hey, do me a favor. I said, I got one of my employees and ex-employees, and she thinks she's broke. And she's trying to decide whether to sell her house or sell this lake property she's got. And her current financial planner tells her she'll be completely broke by the time she's 68. And she's had problems. She's got trust issues. I said, would you do me a favor? I said, would you please call her, figure out her financial situation and give her a budget? Just tell her. And I said, you're not going to make a quarter out of this, John, not a quarter. You're just doing this as a favor to me. Happy to do it. So Mm -hmm. he calls me two weeks later and he says, you ain't going to believe this. And I said, all right, what is it? He said, do you know how much money she's worth? I said, no. He said, $1.8 million. Oh, my goodness. She didn't have a clue. Wow. He thought she was broke. And wow. now, John, he found $200,000 my in-laws forgot they had. Wow. And so do I trust this guy? You do. Now, this woman goes from being thinking she's poor to being wealthy, right? And so he calls me the other day, and she got another question. And the only person she'll listen to is you. <laughs> and so her father died, and she's never been married. And her father died, and so... I became her de facto sort of guardian angel. But she had all this money in her 401k that she saved and her medical savings and all this stuff and that she just stopped looking at because she got in like a Ponzi scheme thing where she lost a house. Hmm. And she just gave up on, on <clears throat> she shared up saying, I don't trust financial planners. I said, Benita, let me make this really clear. I don't know what you've got, but it's way less than what I got. And I said, if John's going to steal any money, he's going to steal mine before he steals yours. And so trust me, this is a guy I trust my life with. So, my whole point is he didn't care about the sale. Yeah. He cared about the relationship. He relationship. cared about being good at his job. He cared about it being honest and in his integrity. And I will guarantee you, I am his biggest client. I didn't know that we would kind of get to this. I was going to ask you this. I didn't know we would kind of get there this way, but your framework for KMR, right. knowledge, messing, relationships. We've talked about the relationships and how important right. that is. And I know so many people listening to it can relate to that. And even the first part about the knowledge, being good at your job, Right. Can you kind of fill that in about the framework and then also just talk to us about the messaging comp- component of KMR? I just learned a long time ago that success in front of the client is a combination of these three interdependent factors. It's how much do you know? So like what I knew about that orthopedic surgeon, I had knowledge that enabled me to create the right messaging, which built the relationship. Now, when that call ended, he asked me to bring the CEO of that company that I represented up to meet him. Wow. That's how that call ended. So. This guy goes from, I will only give you $500 for 15 minutes to, can you bring this guy up here so I can have dinner with him? That's what knowledge and messaging does 
to help you build a relationship. But also think about it. Do you want a relationship with an idiot? <laughs> no. no. That's why the knowledge is so important. Now, here's the fascinating thing about knowledge. Knowledge is not perceived. The quality of our knowledge, let me say it this way. The quality of our knowledge is not perceived by our ability to recite, speak about statistics and data. It is driven by the quality of the questions that you ask that make me say to myself, holy Jesus, I never thought of that. And so what happens is what great salespeople do, and this is what Jeremy says. I love this. About, Jeremy and I are writing a book together, by the way. And Jeremy is, a anybody who's not following Jeremy is making a huge mistake. And just to be clear, just so people know, you're talking about Jeremy Minor. Jeremy yes, Miner, M-I-N-E-R. And he is a rock star and he believes the same thing I do. He says it differently. He says, what you have to do is to determine if there's a sale to be made or not. I say the less you care about the sale, the more you sell. So we fundamentally think the same thing. And we've spent two days together sort of mapping out what do we believe and do we thought we could get along. And, and I just love him. He's got a free Facebook group that anybody can join. And I think he's got brilliant, brilliant stuff. He's got a way of asking questions, but I think you got to have the right definition of selling. But my point is you got to have knowledge and the knowledge you've got to have is of the customer, of your business and of your competitors. And you have to have a knowledge of selling persuasion. And then the messaging is how you say what you say. Hmm. Now, the key thing with how you say what you say is how do you eliminate sales resistance? Messaging is the only way that you can eliminate sales resistance. And the way you eliminate sales resistance is, number one, demonstrate that you're not biased, right? So one of the things I teach my coaches when I mentor four Division One college basketball coaches, I say, look, when you're recruiting and that student athlete says this to you, why should I come to Marquette? Let's use Marquette as an example because I used to mentor the guy at Marquette. Sure. I'm still with him. He just ain't at Marquette anymore. I said, when they ask that question, what do you think the average coach, whether it's Krzyzewski, whether it's Roy Williams, or whether it's whoever, what do you think they say? They start rattling off all the benefits of playing at their school. Sure. Yep. That ain't what you're going to say. You're going to say, I'm not sure you should. Now, that's pattern interruption that makes me want to learn more. If they say, why should I do business with your insurance agency? I'm going to say, I'm not sure you should. And they're well, going to say, good. why? I said, because I don't know enough about you. and whether our products are a fit for what you're looking for until you and I have a conversation and I ask you some questions. But here's what I'm going to tell you. After I ask you those questions, you and I are going to have a really good understanding of whether we're a fit or not. And if we're not a fit, then I'm going to suggest you go someplace else where it is a better fit. If we are a fit, you're going to know it. I'm going to know it. And doing business together is going to be fun. That is so good. That's so good. Can you tell, because it's a perfect pickup from that right there. Can you tell the story you told me yesterday about the, I think you were in Vegas with the final expense sales rep, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was just a great story that is perfect to pick up on what you just said. You know, I speak back when you can get on an airplane. I get hired to travel. I was actually speaking to a thousand salespeople from a pharmaceutical company. And then we were training all thousand people for whatever. So I'm checking in and I'm at the Wynn Hotel and the woman that's checking me in is, had to be a six foot tall, very, very attractive African-American woman. And so I said, how you doing? Well, you know, I'm always friendly. And she says, well, t- so tell me why you're here. And I said, well, I'm actually speaking to this group tomorrow of about a thousand people. Well, what are you speaking on? And I said, well, I'm speaking on sales. I've written a couple of books on selling, et cetera. And she said, well, I'm in sales. I said, really, what do you sell? Final expense insurance. I said, well, why do you sell that? She said, well, because when my mom died, she left my brother and I with final expenses. And so I realized that if there's something that I could sell that could put other people not in the position I was, that's something I could believe in. And I said, well, first place, let me make this clear. You got the right idea because we should only sell what we believe in. Because as Zig Ziglar says, selling is a transference of feeling and you can't transfer a feeling you ain't got. Now you got the feeling, right? So you're selling the right thing. I said, now, if you want, I'll send you my book. Send me an email. Give me your address, and I'll sign a copy. Send it to your priority mail. And then if you like it and you got any questions, call me. And so a month goes by. I send her the book, and she calls me on the phone, and she says, look, I love your book, but I just don't know how to apply it to what I do. And I said, well, tell me what they teach you to do. So she tells me, well, they give me leads. 
And what they expect me to do is to go by the person's house and find a way to get into the door and then sit down and try and close them on our policy. And I said, well, how's that working for you? She said, well, it's not working at all because I'm just not getting in many places. And I said, well, do you want me to tell you what I would do? And she said, yeah, I'd love to know. And I said, well, here's what I would do. First, I said, do you get the phone number? Yes, I get the phone number. So I got the address and the phone number. Yes. I said, okay, well, then here's what I would do. I said, every one of that sent this stuff that wants information, so you're delivering information is what you're doing. I'd call them on the phone. And I said, I'd get on the phone, and here's what I would say. I'd say, okay, Mrs. Jones, my name's Leslie. You sent in this inquiry for some information about final expenses. Do I have the right purse? And she, oh, yes. And I said, okay. Well, look, when my mom passed, final expenses were something that was really important. So I'm going to make the assumption that this is something that's reasonably important to you. And candidly, I just think it would be better off if I actually brought this by in person. But I don't want you to say yes to that until I tell you exactly what's going to happen when I walk through that door. Now, are you interested? Yes. So here's what's going to happen. In the first 15 seconds, I'm going to hand you the information that you asked for. That's the very first thing I'm going to do. Now, the next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you three questions. And after I ask you those three questions, you are either going to want me to sit down and finish our conversation, whether you ultimately make a purchase or not is a completely different issue, but you're going to want to sit down and hear about this. Or I'm going to realize that I'm in the wrong building and I need to leave because this is not good for you. So can I come by? And I said, you think you'll get more meetings if you do that? Yeah, she definitely would, for sure. Well, I got to know what the three questions are. Well, but I also said, now, before you go there, also what I would ask her, I say, look, is there anybody else that needs to be there in order for you to make a decision? Should this be right for you? Oh, that's good. Otherwise, she's going to say, well, I got to talk to Jenny or I got to talk to my brother, Fred, or all that. So I need to get the decision makers because this is something that you're going to want to act on if you really, really find it compelling. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe you won't. So see, I sell it and then I buy it back because I'm trying to demonstrate I'm not biased and I'm not. So then she asked me, okay, well, what are the three questions? <laughs> and I said, well, here's the three questions I would ask. And here's how I would ask it. I would say, look, there's no right or wrong answer to the question I'm about to ask you. And I hope you answer. And I said, you have to understand this, that the vast majority of people, I know the answer is probably what it is and it's okay. But if I ask you this question, for my final expenses, I have a little bit of money saved, I have no money saved, or I have a lot of money saved. Which of those three would it be? Hmm. Now, if she says I got a lot of money saved, then I'm saying, well, why the hell did you waste your time calling me and asking me about a report? Now, I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to say, well, then this is not for you. If she says I have a little money saved or not much money saved, then I'm going to say the truth. The truth is, candidly, that is probably 85% of people in America. So you're in the same category as everybody else. But here's the second question, which is an important question in and of itself. So if you don't have a lot of money or a little money, and, you know, funerals that cost, I just went through one, it was 12,000 bucks. Funerals are not an inexpensive thing. And then you got to realize that you got a family that's grieving your loss. But who exactly would this financial burden fall to should you not have the funds or the means to take care of it through your own estate? And I really do need a real name. And so she's going to say, well, my niece, Alice, or my brother, John, and I don't care who she says. I'm going to say, well, let me ask you the third question. The third question is, so if it's Alice, so Alice is going to have this financial burden because that's who you've sort of chosen to deal with this. How problematic is that new financial burden that's thrust upon her and her family, how problematic is that going to be for them? Is it going to be very problematic, kind of problematic, or not problematic at all? Mm. If she says kind of problematic or really problematic, then I'm going to say, well, then we need to sit down and have a discussion about this. If she says, my brother Fred's worth $2 million, he can probably handle the thing, then I'll say, look, then you might want to take a look at this. He might want to take a look at it. So he doesn't have to spend the money, but candidly, it's not a discussion that we need to have. And so I told her that and she started getting meetings and started selling a lot of insurance. You know, when you said might want to take a look at this, it's almost like the words that used earlier might make sense. This might make sense to them. I think the last question I want to ask you before we get into some rapid fire questions, because I have so many, but 
This does get into your approach to how you think about moving the sale forward. And so there's different phases of a sale and in insurance, yes, there's one call closes, people get a lead and, or somebody walks in and you close them on the spot. That's true. But I know we can all relate to the fact that you're having a conversation with someone and to your point, they're going to go back home and they're going to look at the numbers and then they're going to speak to their spouse or they're going to talk to somebody else, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what is your approach and your recommendation for how the agency owners can discuss how to move that forward with their sales teams to get gain commitment. I'm not sure if you've actually used those words, but I'm paraphrasing here, gaining commitment to the next step in the process. Well, I think a lot of that depends on what they say. In my mind, if you ask the right closing questions, you ought to be able to close at one call. Mm. There's a five-step process that I use for closing, right? first one is I try and get alignment. I'm going to say, look, so let me sort of summarize here. So we talked about, you want to cover the 2017 CRV Honda, and you've got some insurance on that now, but you're looking for maybe a little bit better coverage. And you also want to cover your husband's motorcycle. I mean, am I right about those are the things that you want? And I'm also right about the fact that I get the sense, now maybe I'm wrong, and if I'm wrong, I want you to tell me, but I get the sense that price is important, but what you're really looking for is a relationship with an agent that you can trust over a long period of time that'll take care of you and be there when you need them. Is that right? Because if you do need one, and I can promise you this happens to me more often than I wish, the presence of an agent there that you know is going to take care of whatever your issue is, is really, really important. Somebody to call, somebody to count on. I get the sense that that has some degree of importance to you. Sure. Yes. Right? Do you hear what I said? Some degree of importance. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to plant that seed that I matter. So Mm -hmm. do I have it right that those are the things that are really important to you? Yes. And so can you see yourself based on the things that we've talked? Can you see yourself feeling comfortable making the decision now? Or do you think there's a next step? And if there is, what is it? In your That's good. And then if he says, well, I, I want my wife and I to talk it over, then I would say, okay, and well, that makes a lot of sense to me. But since she's right here, why don't we do it now? Hmm. I mean, I don't know what you want to talk over. If you have a concern about the price or if you have a concern about the coverage, then I would rather address that now than I would for you to, to go. I mean, because you're talking about the difference between knowns and unknowns. Once I leave here, everything's going to be an unknown because you're not going to know because I'm the person with the knowledge. That's true. That's right? very true. And they forget as soon as they walk out of the door. Exactly. Oftentimes, and, I, and candidly, I think the right thing for me to do is to be here as you make this decision, whether it's to use do business with me or not. You got to understand this. I'm not here to sell you insurance. I'm here to get you as a client because I think this is in the best interest of you having someone who will take care of you. Because I will tell you that this is a business like a lot of businesses where just because it's the least expensive doesn't necessarily make it the right choice. That's so true. And so all I'm saying is the agent and the agency matter. And mm-hmm. the people that get burned in this business are people that don't understand that the agent and the agency matter. And so mm-hmm. I'm just telling you that if you believe that the agent and the agency matter, then you ought to be looking at me and saying, all right, do I want this person representing me? And if you do, then whatever differences there are and maybe the cost of the insurance are worth it. And I can tell you that all you need is one bad experience. Yeah. That's all you need for you to say, Damn, I wish I'd had a crystal ball that day that guy was here. Yeah, your crystal ball comment you made yesterday about that's what you would do if you were back in insurance. That was really good. Well, I, I think crystal it, ball everywhere and I put it on the table and people say, what is that? I'd say, that's a crystal ball. And let me tell you what your problem is. And I'm not saying you got a problem. I'm just saying we all got a problem. We ain't got one of these. Because yeah. let me tell you what, our actuaries can tell you exactly how many people are going to die today in this zip code. But that's you know true. what they can't tell you? Their damn name. That's right. Right. They can tell you all that stuff. And I can tell you how many accidents we're going to have. I can tell you how many houses are going to burn down. I'm going to tell you how many businesses are going to burn down. I want to tell you how many businesses. Gonna, I can tell you all that. I just can't tell you who it is. Mm-hmm. And I said, so the power of insurance of any kind, whether it's life insurance, property insurance, fire insurance, whatever, is the fact that you don't have to worry about what it happens or when it happens. Yeah. What you have to worry about is if it happens, are you covered? 
Are you going to be financially okay and not financially wounded because you made a price decision that turned out to not be the decision that you really wish you'd made? That's the question. What a way to wrap up the podcast. I'm telling you, that spoke to people that were listening to this podcast. Well, I I hope so, because I'm telling you, when you get to be my age, that insurance really matters. Yeah. I mean, it, it really matters. And not only does the insurance matter, the property insurance matters. I could tell you, my property casualty insurance person has been with me for 20 years. I have seen her one time. And I did not see her live until she had been my agent for 10 years. Wow. Now, I yeah. never met a better agent. I worship this woman. This woman is always there when you need her. If you got any issues, she solves the problem. She's got a team of people that are just like her. And if you got any issue or problem, they get back to you immediately. And I don't look at the price, nor do I care. I want that woman covering me because yeah. I know for 20 consecutive years, she has been, and I mean, I've got rings insured. I got watches insured. I got three homes insured. I got three cars insured. I'm spending a lot of money on insurance, but I don't ever look at it. Now, I know she'll tell me this one's a little bit more expensive. I think you're better off with that one. And I'll say, if that's what you think, Gracie, it's fine by me. Mm. Because the real thing you want, Bradley, in the final analysis, Ron Willingham said, the goal of any business is to get and keep customers. Yeah. And you got to get them first. And once you get them, you got to keep them and you keep them by what I call consistent, persistent, relevant contact, keeping them in your eyesights, making sure that they're hearing from you. And I don't mean in a disingenuous way, but with text messages, you can send anybody a text message and say, hey, I'm driving down the road today. And when I stopped, I said, I got to text one of my favorite clients. I hope you're doing well, Bradley. That means they'll live with that for a month. Yeah, Two months, so right. three months. That's but a great what we reminder. do, the technology has made that easier to do. Now, <laughs> I have an reminder. app. I have an app called Really Linked, and you can get the app for free in the App Store or in the Google Store. And it makes it easy for you to stay in touch with 150 people that most matter to you in your business. Ooh, I love that. We'll put the link in that if that's okay. We'll put the oh, link sure. in the show Absolutely. notes for that and yeah. in the email. This has been fantastic. Can we wrap up with some real quick rapid yeah, fire yeah, questions? Yeah. Yes. All right. All right. This has been great. I mean, I've just enjoyed getting to know you and meet you over the last two days. It's been an absolute pleasure. Okay, here we go. Last book you read. The last book I read, well, the book I'm reading right now is Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. That's a great book. It's a terrific book. The book you would recommend the most to others in addition to yours. The Power of Consistency by Weldon Long. Weldon is coming on the podcast. I've just got to meet him a few weeks ago. His story is incredible, too. He's a wonderful human being and a very good friend of mine. Oh, that's great. But his book, I've read his book twice. Because of his book, I've created my own quiet time, my own prosperity plan. And I think everybody on the planet should read his book. Totally agree with you. I'm excited that he's going to be coming on the podcast. So for those of you listening to this, by the time you listen to this, we'll probably have already recorded his podcast. That is a great book. No doubt about it. Yeah. All right. If there was a movie made about your life, Jerry, who would you want to play you in that movie? (laughs) Who would I want to play me in that movie? I don't know. I like Tom Cruise most of the time. But look, if Tom Cruise can do Jack Reacher, he can do Jerry (laughs) Acuff. That's true. I love the Jack Reacher books. Did you read those? Every one of them. Oh, they're good, aren't they? Yeah, I do. And if that movie comes on tonight, I'm going to watch it again. What is your favorite tech tool, app, or software that you use every day? I'm going to answer this question slightly differently. What is the most utilitarian is LinkedIn and Facebook. Okay. Only yeah. because those are the places to go to get information about the people that you meet that you don't know very well. Sure. And I think they're invaluable, too. And obviously, Google. Because you yeah. can Google people and find out lots of stuff about them. Dead or alive, who would you love to sit next to on a 10-hour flight? My father. Mm, Good answer. Fill in the blank. I'm going to go back to 2000, answering this question. Fill in the blank. In 2000, I had no idea this would be so hard. I don't know. I mean, 2000, I thought it would be very hard for me to get fired from that job. That's what I thought. And I got fired, and it was the best thing that ever happened to me. But in 2000, I had not started my company because I got fired in 2000. So if you ask me, I'd say it would be hard for this guy to get rid of me because I doubled his sales. Whenever we can open up, I know you've traveled the world. 
What's one place that you would love to visit that you have not gone to yet? That's a great question. I actually came up with this. My wife and I were watching the Hallmark Channel, Bruges, Belgium. Oh, I've never heard of Bruges. That's Belgium. on my prosperity plan. Okay. What's one thing that you learned during the pandemic? I would say that at the end of every tooth is a human being. And I think the most important thing I've really learned is that if you can't adapt, then you're not going to succeed. We adapted and wound up having a huge year last year. It's March, whatever it is, the 9th. We already have 50% of our annual goal already booked. Wow. Wow. Last question. What is the best piece of leadership advice you've ever received? I never received this advice, but I give it a lot. And then I just fall in love with your people. Because if you love your people and you are dedicated to their success, they have given you the opportunity to be a gigantic influence in their business life, which is in most cases far more than a third of their life. And so you got to love them for what they are, not for what you wish they were. But if your singular goal is to help them succeed, then it is impossible for you not to succeed. Well said. People want to find out more about your company, Delta Point, yourself. Where would you point them to, to find out more about you and resources? Yeah, deltapoint.com is our company website. And then the jerryacuff.com is a website that's just devoted to me. And if you want to go and see testimonials from people like Herb Sendak, who's the fourth youngest basketball coach in college basketball to 400 victories, who I've taught his whole staff recruiting and he's a dear friend of mine. I've been his mentor, I think, for 13 years now in some form or fashion. It's harder now because he's way out in California, but that's a jerryacuff.com. Awesome. We'll put the links in the show notes. Jerry, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. All right, Bradley. Thank you very much. Wasn't that great? I mean, I think I could really sit and talk to Jerry for hours on end. I mean, quality of his questions, but just the stories that he tells and so many people that he knows in his network and the things that he's seen and the impact that he's been made on the world. And let me just tell you, he is a quality human being. The amount of time that he's given in preparation for the podcast and before the podcast If Jerry can help you, he and his team, reach out to them. I think so many of you, just the way that he approached insurance, you could see, he yes, he was in the insurance business a long time ago, but his knowledge and understanding of insurance, I think is just, he gets it. And I think that his approach is going to resonate with so many of you. Go to jerryacuff.com or you can visit their official website, deltapoint.com. He has a ton of resources. You can find all of his books on his website. You can obviously find his books on Amazon, but they also have some virtual training options for you to be able to take a look at. Incredibly affordable for you just to kind of look into some of the things that he has. And one of them he shared, hey, I got 90% of what I know about sales and marketing is on one of those. So reach out, go to his website, take a look at jerryacuff.com or deltapoint.com. I don't think a podcast talking about sales and persuasion would be complete if we did not mention our friends at Direct Clicks. You got to be able to have leads and prospects that you can actually speak to and convert over and steal them away from where they currently are. And I thought Jerry's story about just the right way to approach and the way that he told the story about his financial advisor now taking him away from where he was today. I think it was such a great illustration. So many of you could relate to that story. But that also means that you have leads to actually convert. And if you're wanting to grow your business, you're listening to this podcast, I know you're somebody that wants to grow. You want to grow professionally, grow your business. You want to grow in your leadership. You want to grow your teams. You want to develop them. But you also need some leads to be able to do that so that you can convert and you can have a higher closing ratio. And one of the best ways to do that is the quality of leads that you get. And having a presence online is so important these days. But it's also important for you to have a marketing company that knows you, knows your business, understands your goals and what it is that you're wanting to accomplish. Go to directclicksinc.com. Reach out to the team there. You're not just a number with Direct Clicks. They care about you. They care about the relationship. Go to directclicksinc.com and just have a discovery call. Whether you're with a company now or you've not ever done something, you've tried to do it yourself, my guess is your time would be more valuable doing something else, developing your team, developing yourself, instead of trying to worry about how to do search engine optimization and pay-per-click. Even if you are good at it, your time could be better used putting that to something else, making a sale than worrying about all of the things of where to click and how to click and how to optimize your website and all of those things. 
Go to Direct Clicks Inc. Let them take a look at a free, no obligation strategy call, discovery call. Work with them and see if it would be a great fit for you. I think that you will not be disappointed. DirectClicksInc.com. This was a good one. Until next episode, lead well.